Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, yes, I'm great. Thanks, Dave. He's still, he's still got that stinker of a car. I have got a stinking He's just car. manning up about it. That's what he is, manning back up. Case of, back case of man flu. And today we, we've got a fantastic treat for you. We've got uh, James Cantrell. Hi, James. How are you? I'm um, well, thank you. I've never been described as a treat before. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're the chocolate on the box. There we go. Um, James, I think, is going to be fascinating to watch and listen to today because he's got a very diverse portfolio in terms of what he does, what he's done, and what he's interested in. I could tell you, but I'd rather him tell you because we've just had what's normally a 60-second pre-start chat, about 10 minutes, and Paul and I are just going, oh, say that, say that. So we've stopped it, and we're just going to say, Paul, let's listen to James and see what happens here. James, give us a potted sort of two- to three-minute overview of what it is you do, how you do it. Right, well, I'll start with the history. Um, <clears throat> grew up on a dairy farm just outside uh, Stafford. Yeah. Um, so, uh, some of my earlier things are, um, you know, can you walk right next thing? Can you drive a tractor? <laughs> um, can you milk a cow? Um, all that kind of thing. So very involved in the family business. Um, the, uh, for one reason or another, um, personal family issues, we ended up, uh, selling the farming herd and, uh, looking to diversify the business. Um, and, uh, also when I, uh, got older dad was dad was always insistent you're going off to university you're uh you're going to get yourself another string i'm very grateful for that um and uh then because like with all farming families there was a few family members around taking wages and salaries from the business dad was right you're going out to get yourself a job lad and um you'll uh you'll also be milking in the at the weekends um <laughs> so uh so I ended up going off to work for a couple of MEPs, members of the European Parliament, um, and uh, in the days when we still did that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I was very involved with farming policy there because, to a certain extent, I suppose I had, I had a USP that I was a farmer's lad coming into... Um, uh, coming into the European Parliament now, I, although I was based in the UK, I got to go over there and do uh, various bits and bobs. Um, so um, I very quickly was being asked my opinion and and doing things like that. Um, the uh, one one of my regrets, I suppose, is I was I was asked to go and be an advisor um, to the Conservative delegation in Brussels, but I wasn't unfortunately able to take that up. But um, but I got to be quite involved, and and I think I was saying to you before. I, I remember once we were at the Strasbourg Parliament, and the French farmers turned up to protest, and um, and they know how to protest. <laughs> yeah, and I got told off for standing against the big glass windows watching it because I was just fascinated watching these burning bales of straw flying over the fence and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And um, on one hand, they said it was dangerous. And on the other hand, I kind of was thinking, I wish we did these kind of things. Maybe, <laughs> someone, maybe someone would take a bit more notice of the farming industry. But um, but anyway, so I did that. And then I toddled off to be a, uh, to be a head of news and current affairs at a, at a radio station for a few years. And um, then found myself coming up to 2010, getting pulled back into politics. And... Um, 
I've uh, and also my responsibilities on the family business due to uh, my father's health uh, became a bit more pressing um and that's always been top priority for me so uh, that um pulled me back to doing that so that's worked out very well for me because I've been able to do do the politics be involved and uh, run the family business at the same time so uh, wow. it's all worked quite well for me and you um, say you your farm diversified a bit how did the farm evolve? yeah yeah so yeah so we we basically took a look at um uh, obviously we got rid of the got rid of the milking herd for for various reasons doing my father's health and um and again um you know keen I, I was young i was young at the time but keen farmers lad i was like don't worry dad i'll 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 do the two three hours milking and i'll come and work on the farm and 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 dad bless him no longer with us but he was uh, he was very clear on no you're not you know we this is my decision and you're going to go and do, have another string to your bow so um so what we looked at is we we took a real look at where we were what our location was and and what things we had going for us and one of the good things in staffordshire is they've got a very good system of county farms mm. so uh start a farms intermediate move on to that and, and really encouraging folks to get into 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 farming and, and and that's something i i always think is is a great is a great system to encourage new people into the industry but but as we all know with with farming at the moment um the amount of land you've got is always a challenge you have to be a little bit bigger to to make that profit margin um acceptable yeah um so we and we found that quite a few of the, the farmers around us were uh we're really struggling with the amount of acreage they've got. So, so we have turned quite a bit of our farm over to grazing agreements. So we still do the farming. We're still growing the grass. We're, you know, doing all the maintenance and that kind of thing, but they, they then pay us for the crop. Um, so it's allowed them to either turn more of their um, unit over to grazing and then use ours for the silage or whatever we come to a negotiation or, um, or obviously with a grazing agreement, uh, clues in the name, um, sometimes yeah. they come and just take the crop off by sticking 40 animals on it or whatever. So uh, so that that's that's one of the things that we've we've done on the business and that's worked very well for us and very well for them as well. Um, and um, also uh, my personal um, thing that I was interested in, myself and my wife is rare breed animals and we went into rare breed pigs. Um, uh, partly also helping with um, the, in, uh, the the de development of rare breeds, so uh, Tamworths, Saddlebacks. Um, got a couple of Cooney Coonies because my wife wanted them, even though they drive me mad. And um, they, uh, but but the really being involved in mixing up the uh, mixing up the breeds again because the um, obviously the the bloodlines were all getting a little bit thin um and um just like they do with one or two farming communities and all which is my <laughs> I, I, I uh i keep being attacked for marrying a girl from hampshire but i often say well i've done my bit for <laughs> um but uh done my bit to stir it up i'm gonna get myself in dreadful trouble for that but i have you are uh, you're, you're gonna met, do yeah. You're going to be doing odd jobs till the week past your death. I've, I've, one, I've yeah. made that joke. Yeah, I've made that joke at a, a couple of family events, so that'll get uh, that gets me in trouble there and all. Um, but um, but no, in terms of just mixing up the bloodlines, so uh, just being clear that you're not just uh, breeding the same bloodlines again, mixing them up to try and make sure that you can uh, keep the keep the breed going and and uh, and keeping it healthy, um, and then obviously making that pay by selling some of the uh, selling some of the meat from the farm gate now. Um, 
there are challenges with that because we've uh, we've gone very much with a completely non-chemical um approach to that um and uh, obviously in in some parts of the the pig industry there's a lot of chemical in the feed which uh, gets them to grow a bit quicker we've uh, decided to go with um a slower growth but uh, keeping it natural and um i'm not disagreeing with people who, who take that who go down that line we just decided to go down a different line um but it does mean that there's a cost so um so you got the cost of the the meat uh, even if you're just breaking even and uh, with the cost of living crisis some people have um uh, found that that's too much for them so that's been a bit of a challenge and also yeah. with uh with covid um uh selling from the farm gate wasn't possible wasn't allowed so we had to just curb back on that um so uh things in in that regard of uh of taking a bit of a break for the time being um but uh, we are building that up again now and uh looking into that um and um and also we had an opportunity uh because of the location we're at which is right next to uh the town of uh stafford it wasn't when my family bought it over 100 years ago but it is now <laughs> um and um uh, so we've sold off some land for development as well because it's a very good opportunity um and uh the uh the, the, those kind of is are, are different ways that we've mixed things up and we do some caravan storage and um I think I said before, I feel a bit like the Dell boy of farming because it's like, well, we do a bit of this and we do a bit of that. But we just decided, you know, we'd um, we'd split things up and do a lot of different types of things on the farm. So we're, not diverse. Reliant, yeah. Yeah, we're just not reliant on on one thing anymore. And have you kept your interest in policy making and things like that as well? Are you still working with the government at all in trying to shape policy from a farmer's perspective yeah yeah so i i, I certainly won't claim to be at the center of anything um i um uh i, I i'm in uh, this will sound like a dreadful name dropper i'm not going to drop any names at all and um uh, i i'm not going to say i'm best friends with anybody like some people do um you sometimes go to some of these things and someone will say oh i'm best friends with the prime minister it's not what you mean you met him once but um <laughs> the uh because I've been involved in politics for a long time, there are some people uh, who are now elected politicians and um, in in reasonably senior roles that I grew mm -hmm. up with. So um, uh, uh, we we know them, and I I know occasion occasions when they were an idiot. So um, it's always quite useful to remember those. <laughs> but anyway, um, the uh, I, I have the opportunity occasions to drop things in, uh, but I'm I'm very much about um folks down on the ground because my personal view is that politicians far too often listen to the civil servants and yeah, um, yeah. having on occasion seen civil servants um at uh at um at work um uh, i would start saying that yes minister if folks remember that is a documentary rather than a comedy but, <laughs> you're not the um, first person to say that <laughs> no so um uh, so they can be incredibly persuasive and they can be incredibly dominant and um, have on occasions been involved in in meetings where uh, on behalf of the the MPs that I work for, um, where the, the minister is sat there and the civil servant keeps interrupting the minister to almost say, well, you can't say that and you can't say that. Um, and I can't, I often find that a little bit frustrating because you, you want to say, however, meanwhile, on the ground, the people actually doing the work. So I've really been keen on listening to farmers, um, hearing what they've got to say. Because I, I also think, just as an aside, I think there's 
there's still a bit of a regard that your average farmer is leaning on his farm gate, chewing a piece of straw, saying everything's got to be exactly the same. Mm. But but actually, I think if you get out there now and talk to farmers, not just younger farmers, farmers of all um, ages, they have realised that the world has changed and farming has got to change um, in different ways. And they're really keen to do it. And I think if the government and the policymakers would just engage more with farmers, we could get ourselves um, we could get ourselves forward a lot quicker than we are at the moment. Um, and I think there's just a real um, a real desire um, to get those views heard, and that's what I've really pushed for in 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 the in the jobs I've done. Really, I mean, there, there are there are so many massive changes that are affecting farming at the moment. Uh, I mean, you know, we're three three and a bit years past the covid and lockdown experience where there's a massive shift in culture in society people's perception of agriculture and farming and farmers and then environmental issues and concerns the weather i mean at the moment you know it's causing havoc for farms what what are some of the big changes taking place in farms right now and how do you think farmers need to adapt for the future well, uh, I guess the the caveat I have to put at the start of that is what I how I think farms should be changing for the future is not the same as the government thinks farms should be changing for the future. And, and, well, and other opinion, other opinions are available. Is what I'm yeah, saying. yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. So I'll say other opinions are available, and I'll give you I'll give you my view. I I think we just have to turn on the news every night, and um, we've obviously we've had Brexit, obviously we've had COVID, but I think yeah, if we yeah. see the situation in Ukraine, the fact that uh, Russia ju- could just turn round overnight and say, well, that's all perfectly fine, but we're now going to block the Black Sea so no one can have the grain. And the and the impact that caused to the money markets and the international market overnight. I'm, I'm very surprised that governments aren't more saying, oh, well, this is a, a, a massive um, red light flashing, saying that actually this whole this whole distribution system around the world could be turned off in a moment. Yeah. Um, you've got China uh, rattling the cage over Taiwan. You've got the situation in the Middle East as we speak, which is red hot. Um, I think that uh, the British farming industry um, ought to be sitting down with the government and saying, right, how are we going to make ourselves self-sufficient? How are we going to ensure that we, as much as possible, insulate ourselves from um, what's going on? Because um, at the moment, as far as I can see, if you'll um, if you'll excuse the expression, the next problem happens in the in the world. Um, Britain's going to find itself with its backside hanging out. Yeah. Um, just just ready for some other country to hit it or slap it. So I I think that um, I, I completely understand um, why we need to be looking after the environment. I completely understand that there is a real desire that we start um, trying to mitigate the effects of climate change and and, and things like that. I, you know, I'm not going to disagree with anybody about that, but um, I actually think that the, the main focus has to be making us self-sufficient as a nation in terms of our primarily food production, um, making sure that everybody's fed. And I also think that once you've done that, there's also a part to be played by the farming industry in terms of... Um, generation of electric and um, and those kind of things as well but i would always say that that is not the first priority i was going um, to ask 
I was going to ask you uh, uh, whether you thought, James, that the two things can go hand in hand. So uh, food security, which is the you know, the big phrase that everyone talks about, mm. can, can that go hand in hand with a progressive view of the environment? Can we, do, do you think the two things can go hand in hand or have we got to focus on one more than the other? No, I think they can go hand in hand. I think I think the problem that we've got is we've gone too far the other way. Right. Um, and I think we're talking, I think we're talking about taking a lot of land out of production. Um, and and I don't think that is the way to go. I think the yeah, and now you may turn around and say to me, well, James, you're a massive hypocrite because you've just said that you've sold some land for development. Well, that was that was the way our you know I don't worry, the irony has not escaped me. Mm-hmm. But um, but that was the right thing for our that that was the right thing for our business. But, but just just interrupting you, James. But if yeah. in that scenario there would there would have been a scheme in place that would have made it more beneficial to you to hold on to that land, you know, if that scheme could be created, and that's not beyond the realms of man that we can't do that. Yes, we need housing. Of course we do. That's a separate issue. But from a farmer's perspective, whether it's putting solar panels on my land or or, or not building properties, but keeping it as food production, as long as that is financially viable, I think most of the farming community would prefer probably to keep it for food production than Set it for housing. So it's all to do with just the will, isn't it, really, of the governments and the schemes to to make that attractive. In your case, oh, it's just that was the best option. But if the other a better option would have been to keep it, I'm sure you and the family may well have done so. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I you know, I, I I will be perfectly honest. Obviously, I realise this is in the counselling session. There's no couch here, but the um, uh, but I do sometimes still sit there and wish that I'd insisted on carrying on milking the cows and we carried on running the farm as a farm and um and there's part of me i think will always have that deep regret till the day i die but the decision we took was the right decision for the business at the time yeah um given the finances available now the um uh in terms of the the offer for farmers i i do think that a lot of things will be very different if farmers could see a way where they're going to make a decent amount of money and and I also um, uh, kick back quite strongly at this insinuation from some people in government that they're having to make farmers look after the environment. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, uh, I, um, I think I think the whole people listening to this should be waving their their, their, their um, papers. I, I, I take that very personally on behalf of farmers everywhere because I know how hard my my grandfather and my father took looking after their land seriously um, and talking about, you know, handing on um, good land, uh, good fertile, uh, looked after land. Um, I remember conversations about making sure you didn't take too much out of the soil. You had to make sure that plenty went back into the soil. And that wasn't an alien concept. So this whole talk about, um britain's farmers creating some kind of wasteland that if if they make if they sorry if they allow farmers to carry on the way they have been most of wiltshire will look like the sahara desert by thursday um i think it's just absolute nonsense um so i i agree with your statement really the two can go hand in hand but you just have to work with farmers and i think this is the problem with folks who have never put on a pair of wellies um the um making farming policy 
and there was there was and, something on the news just last night i think it was um and the, there was there was a farmer who was to his own financial detriment not harvesting a crop in a field because the ground was too wet and he said if i send my tractor on there it'll do five years worth of damage to the soil yeah well you get so this says, oh, yeah. i've got to i've got to go this year because of it yeah now there are there are some regulations and things over over what you do to the soil and things like that and and there are things that you have to comply with in terms of um the good old-fashioned cross compliance in those days and uh, all those kind of things but um but but that is the attitude of of your vast majority of farmers mm. is thinking long term thinking what's this what's this going to do what impact is this going to have um you know you hear the first thing about old farmers rip out um hedges tell you what i know a not i know a lot more farmers whose life would be much easier if they pulled out all of the hedges on their farm um and um uh and uh, just at a at a combine covering about 80 acres but they choose not to yeah, because of the because uh, of the the uh, the, the nature and, and what lives in those hedges and benefits from them. So I really uh, I really think there's the stuff that can go hand in hand. But again, this is uh, this is the problem with with folks who um, who dare I say, don't they, they know what the statistics say and they know what things say in the reports and they can repeat that till, if you'll excuse the phrase, the cows come home. But. They don't actually know what it's like on a farm and they don't actually know what's actually, what's going on. Um, and um, Can I interrupt you there, James, and say, yeah. so for the people listening, and, and we understand and respect your your perspective, is, you know, you're not in government, you're yeah, yeah. on the outside of it. But, yeah. you know, there's, there's the NFU, there's things like that. We're not suggesting, I don't think, that farmers get bales of hay and start setting fire to them like they were in France. But So what would be your suggestion to what farmers could do who can they speak to to get their voice heard more if that's the challenge we need to get the farmer's voice heard mm. more in either local government or central government have you got any thoughts on what they could do where do they need to go to get their voice heard well from my perspective there is a general election within the next 12 months okay um and the nfu i know certainly in my area do a brilliant job of um talking with local mps um and inviting them for meetings um but i would say get in touch with your local member of parliament right. and if you know who the candidates are who are standing for the parties get in touch with them as well and um and invite them to your farm yeah, get them to actually come and take a look mm. um and um and show them what the situation is and explain um what farmers actually are already doing because i think you also find with with some of the candidates coming in they haven't got a clue what's going on and to a certain extent, if they don't come from that sector, why would they? Exactly. So, yeah. um, so at the moment, uh, it's great opportunity um, to um, to do a bit of education. I think that's uh, a really good point because we can often see very occasionally in Parliament, some an MP will stand up and talk about something from an agricultural perspective, and it's very rare. But at the same time, we can't sit on our hands, can we, as farmers, and expect people who are from a non-farming background to understand farming. So yeah. I think... That, that's a great suggestion of proactively contacting your local MPs, invite them to your farm, get them to come yeah. and have a look and talk to them over a cup of coffee. Yeah. Then, yeah. then 
if we if lots of us do that, we've got a chance oh. of more of the MPs, both locally and nationally, having an understanding of what really is happening. And it's not a bunch of people chucking loads of carbon into the atmosphere. You know, we're doing yeah. fantastic work. So that's a great suggestion, James. I think yeah. speak to you. Oh, good one. And and that that's important because it it is it starts at a micro level, doesn't it? It, yeah. it has to be about what what can the farmer themselves be doing rather than just waiting for big yeah. organizational to change it happen at the highest level yeah. um so, so james you please feel free to say you'd rather not answer this but no, no, i love that face that i love that face that oh, omg where are we going with this <laughs> don't worry don't worry it's, it's a nice one it's a nice one but at the beginning, you were saying how massively diverse your farm both wanted to or had to become. That change, that terrifies a lot of people. Change terrifies most people, farmers especially, because frequently they're second, third, fourth, even fifth generation. And how how did you and the family cope with that change? Gosh, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Um, well, my my dad was a traditional farmer, so you'll be unsurprised to know my dad never said a word. Um, he just carried on with it. Um, the I found it incredibly difficult, and um, because I'd grown up with it, and in my head was always, um, I'm going to take this farm on, and I'm going to be milking. 200 300 cows when i'm older and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and actually i can still stand in the farmyard and i can tell you exactly what my plan was i was going to put a barn over here and do this and do that and um so sometimes i you know i i, I still struggle with it but you know it's the reality of life that sometimes things change and and you know what you just get on with it and let me push there, if I may. Yeah. And again, feel free to push back and say I'd rather not talk about yeah. it. But So the, there are people listening to this and watching this who will say, okay, I realise I have to diversify. Mm-hmm. I have to innovate. I have to change. I'm terrified. Yes, I've got to get on with it. But there, there is that paralysis, paralysis of fear where, you know, we procrastinate on making a decision and taking action upon it. And then we procrastinate for so long, it almost becomes suffocating and paralyzing. So you say you just have to get on with it. What made you get on with it? How? how what advice would you give to someone who right now is procrastinating and a bit paralyzed with fear? I think, I think you have to, I fully understand what that was and actually the day we sold our herd we had an auction on the farm and it will still be one of the worst days of my life I think um and the and I was only young and um I can still tell you exactly where things were and exactly what went on um but so so I'm just being honest you know it's not an easy thing to do especially if you're from a farming family been there for years it's not an easy thing to do. But given the finances of farming, the one thing I would say is quite a few years later, our farm is still there in a different form, but the farm is still there and it's still functioning as a family business. And when my dad passed away last year, 
he was still able to feel that he'd handed on the business to the next generation. And I and I think, although he never really said anything, um, because my dad was one of those where you could take two pictures exactly the same of him just with a straight face, and it'd be like, dad on the worst day of his life, dad on the best day of his <laughs> life, and it'd still be... Um, uh, but um, but uh, he was still able to hand the, the farm on to the next generation. And you know what? We got to a, a situation if I'm perfectly honest, where if we hadn't made that decision, I couldn't guarantee you he'd have been able to do that. Either through his health or through, you know, the way that, you know, he was, um, he, he, he was flogging himself to death for not much money. Can I just well, add a, an observation here of the industry that I, I work in now with farmers? I, and I think your question, Dave, was a good one about where's the paralysis of fear. Do you think, James, that sometimes... How do I articulate this? There's almost a fear of judgment from other farmers for you quitting, you're giving up almost, as opposed to sticking it out. You know, there's almost a, not, not quite a macho thing, but there's a, you know, you're going to be judged. You, you failed. You've not been able to make it work. Is that also a factor, do you think, that sometimes makes people go on for too long before making that important decision that your family made? Yes. And, and, and you know what, there are, and I'll, 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 I'll let you into a, a few conversations. There are folks in our community who will still regard me as James the the letdown or yep. something like that because yep. because James hasn't carried on the business like he did. And it was interesting when we when the planning application went in for the land that we were selling, one guy ripped a strip off me um about how dare you sell family land you shouldn't do that blah 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 um and i later found out that he'd said to somebody else that i was an absolute disgrace and then at the end of the conversation said of course if it was my land i'd have done exactly the same thing <laughs> so you think yeah. so, you, so you think um and, and that's uh, the reason i raised it because i felt yeah. that in the industry there is a bit of a looking down on people that quit yeah. if you look outside of farming and this is almost the last thing for me to say really if you look at Woolworths if you look at Wilco Wilco Wilkinson's that's just gone the businesses that don't change that don't adapt to the altering environment don't survive the businesses yeah. John Lewis is a good example of a business that's having to change the way it's operated and is surviving as a result of doing so and I think yeah. farming and I think some of that pressure to yeah. not change not go out of farming is what stops farming businesses from making that diversification leap and it requires yeah. bravery and maybe it's finding some supportive people around you you can talk to about it well that, well that's it and it's kind of and, and i'll be perfectly honest we we um uh if you'll excuse the analogy we kind of jumped out the plane before we worked out where the parachute was <laughs> um <clears throat> because because our situation was a bit critical with my father's health and everything and um and it was kind of you know if you carry on milking 200 300 cows a day and you're not going to let your son help you're probably going to be dead within 12 months or whatever um and there were there were other other issues but um the it was it was horrible and i'm not going to sit here and say oh it's going to be absolutely fine and and you'll be great and you'll be sat there sipping a pina colada watching them um sell all the cows and everything but it's it's almost uh, for the greater good you know you have to sometimes sit there and say do i actually want to carry on farming in well, some way yeah. on this farm or 
um, am I going to risk that in three or four years the bank's going to come along and tell me the for sale signs are going up? You can't argue um, with what's true, can you? Yeah. Exactly. The world the world is changing. You know, I think um, my grandfather died uh, in the early 80s. Um, and I sometimes when you're having just a quiet moment, I think if he came back and came onto the farm now, what would he think? And I think he would look at the world and he would just think, what on earth is going on? You know, everything's changed. You've got these mobile phones and um, who decided to make a tractor the size of a three bedroom house? You know, the, the those kind of things. Um, and um, uh, he he would almost if we'd have been doing exactly the same thing, I think he'd have been stood there going, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> you know, why are you? keeping everything the same as it was when I was here. So, um, uh, you know, if we look back in terms of our family and what our family did and, and how the farm was, it was unrecognisable almost every two decades because yeah. things kept changing. And and I sometimes think we're in danger that we um, try and um, store our businesses in aspic and say, it, uh, I want to save the family business so it's going to be exactly the same and we're going to do exactly the same thing um and um and so and yeah if you know only fools and horses that the old thing about triggers broom where he yeah. says I've had, I've had i've had the same broom for 30 years it's had 15 heads and 14 handles yeah. um and um and i think sometimes with farms we can say that this farm has been exactly the same for 100 years well actually if you look into the history it's been completely different and running completely different ways and I think sometimes you have to sit down and say the world has changed and we haven't. If we don't change, we're not going to be here anymore because the world ain't going to stop for you. And we found with our business that the world wasn't going to stop for us. And fortunately, uh, I wouldn't recommend this, but after we'd sold the cows, we sat down and thought, well, what are we going to do now? And we were able to find those opportunities we talked about at the start. Right. Well, I, th I think that is a very powerful message to conclude yeah. on. Yeah, I think... Yeah, so sit still in the motorway, you're going to get run over. So have those conversations. Start having a plan. Look at look at the look at James's story there. The wonderful story of diversification, innovation, and change. Some of it obligated, some of it by choice and necessity. But James, honestly, that was that was very open of you, very honest. Uh, at times, quite touching actually. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you a bit more. And I I actually found it really fascinating. What do you reckon, Paul? Absolutely. And I think, again, what we're trying to do in these conversations is get it really applicable to farmers. And I think they'll hear you and wave their ballot papers. On, we need to have the local voice. Great piece of advice, I think, to get you to speak to your local MP, particularly as they've got to win votes at the next general election. That was brilliant advice. And the second one was embrace change, whether it's painful or pleasurable. It's inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> So it's you've got to just embrace it. I think those are two fantastic messages that at least the team can take away. No, that's great. Well, thank you, guys. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and your generosity. Thank you. So that was interesting. A great conversation with James Cantrell about diversifying a farm and the, the challenges of modern farming. Now we're going to go into that in a bit deeper depth with a one-to-one -one interview with Bill Young. Check out his CV and resume, and he's only telling us a fraction of it. Enjoy. Mm -hmm.